Thank you, Becky. Good morning. Um, Pastor Matt, we're going to be looking in uh, the Gospel of Matthew again, the introduction to the greatest, most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with uh, these expressions of blessing, this description of a good life, a life of flourishing. And the text to which we'll focus this morning is verse 6 of Matthew chapter 5. That's the words of Jesus. Jesus says, blessed, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, I have worked with Pastor Gary Hubler now for three, over three years. I've known him a little while longer than that. We've talked about all sorts of random things and served in various ways. But I learned something in the last few weeks I feel the congregation needs to be, be aware of. He finds it strange when people say they like to eat beets. If you were to say, I have a hankering to eat some beets today, he would wonder if you were well. He has a just-say-no policy to that ruby red vegetable. But even weirder than someone who finds beets appealing are those who enjoy listening to Chinese opera. In fact, quite possibly the strangest person in the world would be those people who eat beets while listening to Chinese opera. If this is you, Gary would like to talk to you after the service, maybe lay hands on you and pray. So all, jo- all joking aside, there is an understood principle, though, that a person's appetites tell us something about a person. A person's appetites tell us something about the, purpose, about the person. So, if I, for instance, if, I, if you were to encounter someone who said, I really like kale, you would know that they care about their health, not the taste of food. It just reveals something about them. But if someone were to say, my favorite book is Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler, and I'd like to read it again, that would make you have an impression of that person. Call it judgmental, call it whatever you want, but we know that what a person desires reflects something of their character, their passions, and their loves. I'll say that again. What a person desires reflects something of their character, their passions, and their desires. So do some self-reflection. For what have you been hankering lately? Like, what do you think will make your heart satisfied? Where does your mind go when you say, I, I'm lonely, I'm disappointed, I just need this? If you hunger for pornography, what does that say about you? If, if, you're, if your mind quickly goes to a shot of Jack Daniels or a need for another bush light, what's that saying about you? How does a hunger for fame and fortune impact your character? What, what about, what's going on in your insides, fellow parents like me? When you want your kids to be successful, you want them to succeed on the sports field or in the concert hall, 
fundamentally, we're all seeking happiness. We, we want a full life. Uh, we're, we, we, we want satisfaction. And appetites, our appetites, hint at what we really think will make us happy. So you let Jesus enter into this conversation, and he says, if you hunger, if you thirst for righteousness, you will be filled. So what does that mean for us today? I kind of have one just statement of kind of big application this morning, and then I'll, I'll spell it out. But the application is stay hungry. Stay hungry. Stay hungry for God's righteousness, though. Stay hungry for God's righteousness. And I'm going to bring that out in kind of in three, three reasons that we want to stay hungry for God's righteousness. Three reasons. And because only God's righteousness is good. For God's righteousness is the only thing that satisfies. And then lastly, we'll look at because a hunger for God's righteousness keeps a door of hope open. So stay hungry for God's righteousness. Thirst after God's righteousness. First reason why we should. Because only God's righteousness is good. What I mean by that is anything else that you would go after, anything else that you would hunger for is tainted. It's not full. It's not rich. It's not good. Uh, so, so what is God's righteousness? Let's kind of get a definition. First, I want, I, the way I want to look at God's righteousness is kind of contrast it to what is God's holiness. So when we hear the term holy, in fact, when the angels are, are singing in heaven, they're singing holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. What is God's holiness? I think one of the best ways to think about God's holiness, God's holiness is his innate purity and goodness. That, that deep at the core of God, there is no evil in him. He is not tempted by evil, nor could he tempt from evil. He is, he is good, he is rich, he is wholesome. And we know how important wholesomeness is. Uh, my kids, I don't know where this came from, but they, they have this little thing now that if your brother asks for a glass of water, and if you've been to our house, you know that the dining room and the kitchen, they're actually kind of a long ways apart. So a lot of things can happen because it's a far away. And it's a going thing now. If you ask for water, double check. There may be cinnamon at the bottom of your water. Or worse. Right, so holiness, though, it's, it's purity. There, it, there's no tainting in there at all. That is God's holiness. His is innate character. So what is righteousness? If holiness is this inward thing, what righteousness is, it's God's expressed purity and goodness. It's that outward acts of God are all good. It's his external standards of what is right and wrong. Right? God expresses his righteousness in the world and everything he does is right and we will understand what is right based on what he says is right uh, you, you we, we really i mean no you, you know, if you just pick up a history book and you just read maybe the last 200 years of history uh, you know that maybe the, the 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 popular 21st century term of morality is just a shifting standard depending on the decade and that that's just a that's even a kind of a non-christian opinion i mean i just think any 
good reader of history would know that the morality of 2022 is not the morality of 20, 2005 or 1905 or 1850. You know, it's, it's constantly changing. And partly why then you would never know is morality actually good if it's going to shift in a decade. You'll, you'll be, you know, people keep saying, be on the right side of history. But if history gets to shift all the time, how would you ever be on the right? And that's the difference with God. God has always been holy, will always be holy, and all, God is righteous, and everything he does will always be right. Um, that's who God is. You know, it's interesting, uh, a number of years ago, in fact, in 1987, there was a Jewish rabbi. A uh, Jewish rabbi, his name was, uh, um, I have it here, Rabbi Joshua Haberman. And he wrote an article, and the title of this article is, The Bible Belt is America's Safety Belt, with the subtitle, Why the Holy Holocaust Couldn't Happen Here. So this is a Jewish man who appreciated the Bible Belt. And in his article, he wrote this. He says, it is not an accident that the Soviet state and Hitler's Third Reich both identified the Bible and its teachers as primary enemies. Right, you have a communist state and a fascist state. What they went after were actual people teaching the Bible and what is righteous and what is good. And if they could undermine Bible teachers and they could undermine the authority of God's word and what God's standards of righteousness, they could do whatever they want. And that's what happened in Germany. And that's what happened in Soviet Union. That's why, you know, godly men like the Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer who would stand up and claim, no, righteousness doesn't, sh there's no shifting standard. They put him, they gave him a death wish and it ended in his, the end of his life. So, friends, only God's righteousness is good. The only way evil and vicious policies can continue is when that standard is somehow covered and, and forgotten. I mean, just by way of a quick application, especially for those of you who are Christians here, you will not know what is righteous and good if you are not reading your Bible. Like, you need this book. And you need to test what this book says to every other book. What any you know, prognosticator of goodness and morality in the 21st century, it needs to be subject to what God has said is good and right and true. Toward the you know, middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to say, if you really are following me and you really want to go after me, seek first God's righteousness and his kingdom. I mean, if you look at your week, is it apparent that you have sought God's righteousness this past week? First. Do the people who watch you this week, would they say, hey, first thing on that guy's list, first thing on that one was like, she, she, she's seeking God's righteousness. I see it. Seeking the kingdom. We want to do that first and foremost because God's righteousness is what is good. Is good. Let me give you a second reason why you want to stay hungry for God's righteousness. God's righteousness is the only thing that satisfies. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, then you will be filled we're all wanting to be filled. We're wanting to be satisfied. Um, and admittedly, there's been times in my life I felt pretty content. Maybe other Americans have felt that. That was a good week. Feeling good. You know, if you get a big tax return, blessed. If you have low expenses this month, blessed. Right? We start evaluating satisfaction on financial security. 
rather than on having God's righteousness. But Jesus knows, and this is the thing I love about Jesus as a teacher, he wants us to actually know that there's a deeper satisfaction than those things for which we've sometimes been content. So when you, you, know, you flip in your Bibles uh, to Luke chapter 6, uh, Luke chapter 6 has, the, has, has a statement of uh, blessing and beatitudes. But in Luke, you also get the woes. This will not produce the good life. This is, this is a dangerous path to take. So Luke 6, 24. If you're hungering after these things mentioned just, about, just now, you won't find satisfaction. So Jesus says in Luke 6, 24, uh, Woe to you who are rich. You have already received your comforts. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how the ancestors treated the false prophets. Again, friends, this is why it's absolutely imperative that we read our Bible. Because Jesus has identified almost all the things that we set goals for and says, if you get these, or if you have these, there is a, a curse hanging over you, a woe. I mean, that is, that is humbling as I'm, you know, I'm my first kid in high school, and I'm, what do I want him to be? I want him, I want him wealthy, I want people to speak well of him, and, you know, I want him to have food. Like, some of the lists that I have for my own children could have them end cursed, and not comforted, and not well-fed, and not laughing forever. Jesus wants us to experience a deeper righteousness and a deeper satisfaction. But we're so content for things far less, far less. And that's, you know, that was so captured well in probably one of C.S. Lewis's most famous quotes in a lecture he gave entitled Weight of Glory, which, by the way, I got to be in the building this summer where he first said these words, weight of glory in Oxford. He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea, we are far too easily pleased. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You will be satisfied. You will be filled. But we're far too easily pleased. Another Englishman by the name of G.K. Chesterton once wrote, Every time a man knocks on a brothel door, he is really looking for God. Right? All those stirs for satisfaction, all those ho- things that you're hungering for, God, his righteousness, it's the only place, it's the only way we'll ever be satisfied. Jesus said something about this regarding himself. Right? One, one day Jesus sent his disciples off, go into town, I'm hungry, get me some food. While they were away, he, he spent the afternoon ministering uh, to, a, to a Samaritan woman, just loving her, talking about having living water that satisfies and trusting in God and knowing that the Messiah isn't just for the Jews, but for all people. And they get, the disciples get back. It was a long journey. They bring back food. They're like, Jesus, we brought you food. You know what Jesus says? 
I'm not hungry. And he says, because my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Like, he was physically, emotionally, and spiritually satisfied because he was in the service of his father. I'm good. You guys can have a little bit more bread. He lived every moment and every second of his day hungering to please his father and do what was right in righteousness. That's our goal. Now, we fall very fall short of that. And so we've we got to have some extended application on it. If, if righteousness is the only thing that, that's satisfied, how do, how do we get righteousness? Right, Jesus was always righteous, and he sets the pattern, but our, our falling short of that is significant. And so how can we be how can we really experience righteousness? And I'm going to invite us, as we, we, need, we need at least two major types of righteousness. I'm just going to divide these out, and you'll understand why. Uh, one of the types of righteousness we sometimes call as legal or forensic righteousness. It's a big fancy term. I'll explain in a bit. But we also need to, ha- we need to have what's, what we would call maybe lived and felt righteousness. So we have legal and forensic, lived and felt let me talk about legal and forensic righteousness. Uh, this is the type of righteousness that goes to the heart of why there was a Protestant Reformation in the 6th century. Why there had to be a return to the good news. And this is the good news. Legal and forensic righteousness is the formal and final de- declaration of God that human sinners are fully righteous in God's sight. It's a legal term. It's a forensic. It's God declares this person is righteous. Totally. And one of the clearest New Testament passages that fleshes this out is in Romans 4. So if you have your own Bible, turn there. We need righteousness to be filled, to be satisfied. How could any of us ever have that? Well, the Apostle Paul goes on to explain this in Romans chapter 4. And in verse 4, He talks about, now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. So this is just, he's giving you an an, an example, an illustration from everyday life. If you go to work, you get pay. You work hard, you're expecting a paycheck. That's how the system works. Verse 5 says, however, to the one who does not work, but who trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. It's an accounting term. Uh, then it gets kind of fleshed out. What is, well, what is, what, what, where, where do you get this idea, Paul? Well, he quotes the Old Testament. Well, David, King David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So verse 5 is very key. How am I made righteous? How am I declared righteous? And if you look at verse 5, look at this. It's not through a work. You can't work for this. You can't contribute to this. In fact, one of Martin Luther's greatest quotes is, when you come to the, the table of God, in order to be saved, the only thing that you bring to the table is your sin. That's what you bring to the table. And that's what it says in verse 5. God justifies who, does it say? Who does God justify? 
the ungodly. Those who come with their sin, who come with their wickedness, who come with their shame. That's what we bring to, here's my table, here's this what I got, God. So you don't work, it says in verse 5, but you trust God. I trust God. I come to the table and I trust you, God. I believe that you can do what you said that you can do. Well, how can God do what he can do? Well, Jesus died for us. If you turn back into Romans chapter 3, he explains how this transaction took place. Uh, Romans 3, I'm reading from Romans 3.23 onwards. It says, For all have sinned and they fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace, by his gift, through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Do you hunger and thirst to be declared right by God? To really believe that Jesus died for you, that his blood is the means in which we can have our sins forgiven? There will never be satisfaction in your soul if you don't know the righteousness that only God can give. I think some people come back to church, maybe they come back after a long absence or they forget, but let me just, if you're here today and you're asking the question, how can I be right with God? How can I be forgiven of my sin? How can the shame be taken away? The answer is trust that what Jesus did on the cross was for you. Trust him. People say, well, that seems so easy. And so, in, in many ways, yes, you have to realize how profoundly easy it is. You can't work for it. You can do nothing for it. You can only receive it. And the only reason it's fair is because Christ did it for you. <laughs> but you have to trust. And here's the thing that why people say, well, that... That seems too easy. You know what, though? The people who say that are too proud to take it. So even though you say it's easy, a lot of times it's our own pride. But I want to contribute, even just a little bit. And so when you say it's easy, I I warn you, it's very hard for you to get on your knees and say, I don't deserve a lick of it. That's how you hunger and thirst for righteousness. I got nothing at this table but my sin. I need you to give this to me, Jesus. The breaking of human pride may be the most amazing miracle that happens at your salvation. That is not easy. But praise be God, he can do it. He did it in my life. I'm thankful that he has broken my pride. I'm like, man, I got nothing. I've said it before, I'll say it again. If I knew all of your sinful thoughts and behaviors throughout the week, I might not want to preach to you on Sunday. But if you knew all mine, you might not want to listen to me. But praise be to God, I'm holding out Jesus. And he makes people righteous when they trust in him. And that is a legal declaration to be received by faith and received at that moment. And I want you to know that. If you know that, you will be filled. But I also want you to stay hungry 
Receive the legal and forensic righteousness of God, but then the good news is you can also begin to live it out. You can become a new person. Now, you have to have the first form of righteousness before we can talk about the second. Right? The second idea is you, you begin to be changed. The Bible uses terms like sanctification, being made holy, being made righteous. Uh, one of the passages I love that describes this working of righteousness in our life is in Titus chapter 2. Listen to Titus 2, uh, verses 11 to 14. This is again the Paul, he's talking about what God does. Verse 11 says, For the grace of God has appeared. It offers salvation to all people. So this grace, what, else, what does it do? It teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Friends, I want you, if you know Jesus, if you trusted him, I want you to hear this good news. By the power of Jesus Christ, you can say no to the ungodliness in your life. You are not a slave to sin any longer. You need to hear that. Whatever addiction that has been in your life the last three or four decades can end in the power of Jesus. Satan says, oh, it's your disposition. You were born with it. You'll never be released. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. He teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That's what I'm talking about. We can have lived out, fleshed out righteousness in this age, right now. Stay hungry for this type of righteousness. While we wait for the blessed hope, that the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Eager, hungry to do what is good, thirsting to do what is good. That's the kind of people God has desired to make. They trust in Jesus, they experience that declaration of righteousness, and then the Holy Spirit comes in and he leads us to live righteous lives, saying no to ungodliness. And I want to press to another aspect. There's this personal righteousness, right? That self-control and patience and peace. But I also think we need, to be st- we need to stay hungry for public righteousness. What I mean by that is we want to see more good in the world. We want to see justice in the world. And that's why there's godly Christians who, are, who fought in the abolition movement to see the end of slavery. And yet it persists. How, what does it look like to pursue justice in the world today that there would be less racism? That there would be a more dignity for life from, from the womb all the way to the casket. We want to fight against political corruption. You know, I, I, I believe a, a good demonstration of someone who knew uh, the righteousness of God and then pursued righteousness in the public world is a man named Lord Shaftesbury. Have you guys ever heard of Lord Shaftesbury? I had to go to London to learn about Lord Shaftesbury. Lord Shaftesbury, he was born Anthony Ashley Cooper. He was the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury. He was born into a wealthy but loveless home. But providentially, Anthony had a housekeeper. She gave him a Bible. She taught him to pray. 
And Anthony saw his desperate need for righteousness, and he trusted in Jesus Christ. He entered into his kingdom. He experienced that legal and forensic righteousness, and yet he was still hungry. And he wanted to serve God. He wanted to honor him. And he began to look out into his country, and it broke his heart. For example, he heard of little boys. Just imagine this, 19th century. He heard of little boys being forced to climb through chimneys to clean out the soot for marginal pay. Men couldn't fit in there, but little boys could. Many of these boys would die of lung-related diseases. Other little boys died after being stuck in these chimneys for hours. There were poor families that would put their little girls into mills and factories that would have to work 14 to 18-hour days, starting as early as 6 a.m., working until 10 p.m., Four- and five-year-old boys were sent down coal mines. This wealthy man would also familiarize himself. He would go in and he would walk among the filthy and degrading conditions in mental asylums. He would walk in the slums of London. And this led Lord Shaftesbury to join Parliament on behalf of the poor, downtrodden, and weak. He's gone on in history as one of the first ones to craft labor laws to save the lives of children. He called on England to improve the sanitation for soldiers and the sick. Interesting enough, out of his very own pocketbook, he paid to make sure any child in London could be educated. This so shamed London and England that it was after his death where people realized maybe we should put our own pennies in to publicly educate people in our country. In addition to this, he helped lead the Bible Society for over 30 years, making sure the Bible was distributed locally and globally. And at his death, all of England wept. They say the streets were lined with the poorest of the poor to pay their respects to their champion as he was buried in Westminster Abbey. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He didn't have his full satisfaction until he took his last breath, but he stayed hungry in his own life and for the world. So, brothers and sisters, happy are those who cry out for righteousness. Happy are those who give themselves to seeing justice in their city. Happy are those to you who help children learn to read. You won't get to every kid, but you can help one. Happy are those who volunteer at a local homeless shelter. Not all will get a bed and a meal, but you can help one, blessed are you when you pursue godliness. Remember this line from the Puritan John Owen, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. There's, there's no neutral in the Christian life. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. I'm just finishing point two. Don't worry, point three is much shorter. Stay hungry. Because only God's righteousness is good. Stay hungry for only God's righteousness will satisfy. But here's the last one. Stay hungry because a hunger for God's righteousness keeps a door of hope open. And what I mean by that is some of you are familiar with maybe one of Jesus' most famous uh, parables. He talks, he talks about a young man, uh, the younger of two sons who goes to his father and says to his father, I'm kind of done with this whole living with you thing. I want half my inheritance now. I'm bolting. I'm done. It says that he takes his inheritance and he goes off and he, he squanders it quite quickly. And then a famine 
hits the land, and he's got no hope, he's got nothing, and so he has to go and you know, make himself this poor labor boy and take care of pigs. And Jesus uses some very vivid illustrations. He is so hungry, so hungry, he wishes he could be satisfied by the food that the pigs are eating. But it's at that point that there's still hope for the young man. He's still alive, and he's hungry. And he thinks, you know what? Even the servants, they got better food at my dad's house. And at the bottom, still hungry, he says, I'm still going to try. And he, you know, he has this big plan, and, he, and he, he's, he's walking back. He's got to be wondering, oh, man, when dad sees me, it's going to be bad. This is not going to go well. Think about the lecture. Maybe some of you have given these lectures. I knew you'd come back, boy. Do you think I'm going to take you back into my house? You have to think he knows those stories. But in Jesus' parable, his father is the heavenly father. And so as it turned out, the heavenly father was looking intently always in the distance to see if the hungry boy would come home. And so in the distance, the father sees the boy. And the father runs to the boy. And the father, you know, I love it. This, you know, he, the son had this, like, speech. Dear dad, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your... Like, he had, but I love that the father stops the speech mid-sentence. No speeches. My son is home. What was lost is found. What is dead is now alive. Let's eat. Remember that? Let's eat. You've come home hungry. God, God the Father in that parable, let's eat. If you are still hungry, there is still a door of hope. So stay hungry. Stay hungry. You know, I fear that for us, some of us are going to follow the fate of the Greek legend of Tantalus. You guys know the Greek legend of Tantalus? It's actually from the word where we get the word tantalizing. Tantalus was the son of Zeus. And Zeus was not happy, and so he punished Tantalus, and he sent him to Hades. And there in Hades, there were two things. There was this tree with low-hanging fruit, and there was this beautiful spring of water. But every time Tantalus reached to grab the branch, the branch would move. And every time he reached again, the branch would move. He could never get the fruit. And every time he knelt to get some of the spring of the water, the water would recede and keep receding. He could never get it. He could never get the fruit. He could never get the water. Now, in some ways, this myth, if you're paying attention, (laughs) that's the world we live in. You are constantly looking for branches that are moving. And if you get it and you eat it, it actually doesn't satisfy. But if you go to... The lesson for us is quit looking for life in Hades. It's not there. Stay hungry for God's righteousness. I mean, even, I mean, if you go to like, if you go to some Division I football programs or a Division I basketball program, you might even see in their locker room the expression, stay hungry. And what they mean by that is, let's let's keep working out. We want to be faster, quicker, stronger. 
stay hungry. We don't want to just win the conference championship. We want to win the district championship and the state championship and the national championship. Stay hungry. What I love is Paul has a little line for that. In, in, in uh, 1 Timothy, he said, you know what? Physical training, it's of some value, but only in this life. But godliness is useful for this life and the life to come. So brothers and sisters, stay hungry for God's righteousness. Let me pray. Father, the, the world has lots of tantalizing things to momentarily maybe curb an appetite, but the deepest desire is still not met. Our hearts are restless until they can be rest, until they rest in you. We will never know goodness until we know the goodness that is given through Jesus Christ, the righteousness given by Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who do know you that they would stay hungry to grow in righteousness, both personally but also to see righteousness publicly. But I pray if there's anyone here today that doesn't know the righteousness of Christ, they don't know what it means to be forgiven, to be declared right in the sight of God, not based on their works, upon the works of Jesus the Son. I pray that they would trust Jesus. Thank you that as long as we're hungry, there's still hope. And we pray that we would go through the door of hope and see our Savior, Jesus Christ. We long for the day when we will feast forever, but we will press on. Help us to stay hungry. In Jesus' name, amen.